Hello and welcome to the Brand Explorer podcast. I'm your host, Dirk Belling, coming to you from Munich. These interviews explore the trails and passes people have taken to build successful brands in the cyclic community. Listen to their lessons from their own personal experience. Enjoy the ride. This is a very special episode for me with Tom Ritchie. Tom has something very special to celebrate. His 50th anniversary of building his first own steel bike frame. This is not the typical Tom Ritchie interview about how he started his company. This conversation is about Tom sharing very personal insights about his inspiration and motivation as a 15-year-old boy living in beautiful Palo Alto, California in 1972. In great detail, Tom shares what and who drove him to fix used things and make them better instead of buying new ones. And how he found out and learned to do all of this on his own in times without Google and YouTube. Since Tom has many, many great stories to tell, his anniversary story comes in two episodes. We talk about how the move from the East to the West Coast was a huge change in his family's lifestyle, about his way into professional road racing and continuing to adventure riding, and how he still keeps this adventurous spirit today with his wife, Martha. Enjoy the ride going back to Tom's future. Tom, thanks thanks for, for taking the time so early. And I can tell you're definitely uh, warming up quickly, um, <laughs> which is nice. Um, yeah, the, the reason that the, I'm really excited we get together to chat today is a very special anniversary of yours. Um, 50 years ago, 1972, you built your first steel frame. And uh, if, if I did my math right, um, you were, were just 16 years old. So first of all, congrats to this great uh, anniversary, I mean, 50 years of experience. But what I'm curious is like, how, how does a 16-year-old get into building steel frames? I, I mean, for 16, I think the, I did something different when I was 16. Uh, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> good to be with you, Dirk. Um, I, th I think, you know, uh, any, any of my, uh, hum what I would say is humble beginnings and people I know, um, it's the, the, the mother of invention is, 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 you know, living without and a necessity and the things that people talk about. So, um, what most people don't realize maybe uh that we're born in the kind of the era that we we now live in um is that is that it was really hard to lay your hands on a good bike that you could afford okay. and so as a 16 year old i couldn't afford anything new of course there were even people that were like my father and other people that were uh strong uh in in the sport um we're, we're riding used bikes okay and so the idea of being on a good bike um 
uh, was 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 a very elusive and distant idea. And the only way that I could afford what was I would consider a good bike, which was a Cinelli or a, a Mazi or some other Italian bike at the time, um, was to to buy something that was actually broken and figure out how to repair it. And so that was um, the whole story with the first bike. And that was when I was 15. And so that, um, that repair, a broke, repairing a broken bike and, and kind of peeling back the onion skin, so to speak of the way that it was made and looking underneath the paint and into the, into the build quality of a bike was something I was very curious about early on. So where, where did you find that, that, uh, bike or and, and what what was broken i that, my memory my memory is is really i i there was a guy that his name was jim van boven and he was the junior national champion and i vaguely remember getting okay i, rem, I remember connecting with him and buying a bike from him at the time it was a Bianchi, but I think he also uh, was, was, I think he also had the Cinelli that I bought. Um, so it's a, anyway, it's a stretch of a memory for me at this point. The main thing it's is always the morning. So that's okay. Yeah. The main, Yeah, but anyway, I haven't I haven't recycled or come back on this kind of uh, it, you know idea of, of who it came from for a long time. I just know it wasn't just a Chinelli that was broken; it was other bikes. And so the idea that no one um, that no one what to do, knew what to do with these broken bikes was not a new idea. It was. There, the it, it coincided with the reality that that there was a lot of people that had broken bikes and they didn't know what to do with it with them, and that there was anyone that was going to replace a down tube or or broken. Uh, in my case, it was a seat stay, a broken seat stay, or a chain stay. Who was going to do it? There was no one doing it, and and that was. You know, to me, a, a, a big, you know, a big opportunity and an idea. So before I even built my first frame, not only did I, not only did I repair this Chinelli so that I could have a bike to start assembling and and putting parts on it and and finding a crank set and a and a derailleur and you know the other parts, um, but there was also uh, people that found out that I repaired this bike and they said, I've got a, a, a Ron Cooper and I I've been looking for a way to recycle it and get it back to life. And, and do you, do you know how to repair a down tube? Because they knew I had repaired a seat stay. And right. I remember the second bike I, re I repaired was pulling apart a Ron Cooper and replacing a down tube. And so there was a guy Out in of all places, La Honda. His name was Hugh Enox, who had wow. um, somehow um, 
started his own um, his own frame building, and he had tubes and lugs, and those are the ingredients. <laughs> and and so I I remember uh, getting um, a tube to be able to re- repair this Ron Cooper and and other tubes and ended up, um, you know, at a very young age, driving my family, uh, Volvo. Actually it was, it was, I think my, I think I bought it off my dad when I was 16. So anyway, 15 driving over to La Honda and making a transaction with this guy in this, you know, kind of place in the middle of nowhere somewhat. And um, getting a, enough information that I basically uh, thought I could put tubes back in bikes. And but let's double click on on getting information. So you you had the broken bikes. You knew you wanted to fix them. You found the tubes. But you know how does a does a fifteen year old you know there was no Google around that time uh, yeah. get get the know how to to uh, on a YouTube to 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 exchange a down tube or to fix a seat. Well, that's a huge segue because then, then you got to, then I got to talk about my dad. Okay. And let's talk <laughs> so, about so my, so my father, my father was a, a he was a, a very accomplished um, electrical engineer. Okay. So he had, he, he just, he, and, and to be honest, you know, it, it wasn't so unusual um, because there was a lot of people in his world that were very similar to him. And there turned out to be a lot of other people that were like him um, in, in my history. And I call it the think it, do it people. The think of doing. Think it, do it. Think just it. two, just two words four words, think it, do it. And it's a matter of, you know, it's, it's a, it's, it's probably, you know, historically the people that make things in the world, (laughs) right. (laughs) You know, whether it be the, the farmer who's got a broken tractor or whatever it is that thinks of how to make a combine and other things that transition technology from horse and buggy to other things and cars. And, and it, 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 it encompasses a conceptualization of a, a, a broken part. Everything starts with something that breaks. And in my world, it was a, you know, it was an, I needed a bike and, and there was someone else that had something that was broken and it was the only way I could afford having it was to fix it. And it was basically, that was the world my dad grew up in. It was a very, it was a very humble beginning for me. It was a very humble beginning for him. And it was a very humble beginning for my, for my uh, ancestry that came from Norway on my mom's side and moved to Minnesota and figured out how to farm in a new country. And, and uh, it, um, you know, I'm sure that it's the very same story in your country, in Germany, and all. Um, but basically, uh, you know, there was no. You're right. There was no YouTube, no ins- no instruments of learning. The only thing you could do is 
is conceptualize how things were made and how things could be repaired or fixed or improved or innovated and developed into, into something that was different. And when you take, you know, a history from the 1960s past and after the war and what America was like, um, innovation was, uh, I mean, we don't appreciate what was going on at the time, but innovation appeared in pockets. Mm-hmm. And so we were we were talking previous to recording about the pockets, like Boulder was a pocket, and other places were pockets, and how um, people congregated, they formed a you know formed communities, they formed idea centers, and then they challenged each other, and they grew something that had never been done before. And so when my dad. Um, was kind of tired of the East Coast after um, him and my mom in 1963, you know, raising two very young young children, my sister and I, uh, was noticed by talents in the Bay Area and asked if they wanted to move 3,000 miles across the United States to, to become, you know, the head of something as a young, as a young man. My dad was my dad had, I don't know, I think he was 20, uh, what was he? Let's see, 19, he was 29, 63. <laughs> I'll do the math. Yeah. <laughs> um, anyway, he was 30 years old. He had he had gone into the Korean War and wow. had the the value of of a he didn't have any money as as a as uh as a family um his dad was gone his his mother raised him and aunt raised him and he became interested in mechanical things and so he ended up um coming out of the war with what in the united states was called the gi bill and the gi bill was we pay for your if you go to war and you serve four years we pay for your education so he ended up getting a decent education at, at Pennsylvania State University, Penn State, and ended up um, getting hired by what was at that time a skunk or a, a, a skunk work uh, project in RCA uh, in uh, Camden, New Jersey. And believe I only found this out like last year. Um, uh, developed a next generation of stop frame recording devices that had to do with the transition of tape to uh, tape to disc, let's just say. So the, I, the old technology that was used in the recording industry was tape, magnetic tape. And there was a transition that they were experimenting with that went, that went uh, to the disc uh, magnetic disc, like the hard drive that we that we imagine when we say a hard drive, and and so he was at the forefront of that and received a number of patents. Became on people's radar in Silicon Valley, which wasn't called Silicon Valley at that time. A company named Ampex, which was a competitor to Hewlett Packard, and offered this job to move the family. Um, all the way across the country to 
Redwood City, California, which um, was adjacent to the communities, of course, of Menlo Park and Palo Alto and Stanford and these in these well-known uh, places, and Love the Bay, yeah, for sure, yeah, the Bay Area, and and head up a at a young age of thirty years old, head up a um, a development of what became um, very important to technology, which was the magnetic disk storage capacity and the instantaneous access of information because it was a disk base rather than a tape base. So. The uh, <clears throat> um, when I was a kid, <clears throat> uh, of course, we watched the Olympics, and I'm pretty sure it was the '68 Olympics, and there was for the first time ever, there was the ability to do a photo finish. Ah, oh, okay. Um, because no one could stop the action at the moment and look at it and say, this guy won, this guy lost. It was based on a judge. Yes. And anyway, he invented that technology. Wow. Your dad did. Impressive. So he, he was just telling me the story. I kind of knew it a little bit, but I didn't know how critical he, how, how in the middle of that he was. And that was the, his specialty. Um, and that, and that anyway, so that was the, that was the world I grew up in. And my dad, you know, another story that, that is, is kind of a cool story is, is that the East coast mindset was different than the West coast mindset. Of course, my dad, my dad was a smoker and when he moved out to California with the family, his his, I mean, you know what California is like. It's a very beautiful place along the right. coast, a lot of mountains and redwoods and all the kind of things that you kind of, you know, never seen before. And he just came alive and he stopped smoking. He joined the Sierra Club. He started riding a bicycle. He started sailing with people that were engineers that had small small uh racing or small sailboat associations and racing right out of Redwood City and in the bay and the sailing in the bay was 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 uh was was very the um well known San Francisco yacht harbor and all the things that happened in association with people's idea of sailing was was uh was was very exciting to him and so i i was just a, a punk at that time. And my dad was just kind of creating not just technology, but he was creating ways of having fun. And you were part of this. You did, did you go sailing and, and, uh, Oh yeah. I got, I got it. I got submerged in everything. Sierra club and, you know, the, the, you know, climbing, you know, some of the tallest peaks in the Sierras and, and, and the Muir Trail and Yosemite and all these places and then cycling and then sailing. And it was like a three-way, it was a three-way tug of war for what, what we were going to do on the weekends, whether it be one versus the other versus the other. And it was a very active youth. And my sister and I were, were kind of just, um, you know, 
uh, riding the wave behind my dad, <laughs> so to speak. And, and so that was, that was the weekends, but the weekdays was inventing, was develop, building a sailboat, building the electric car that I, that I sent you a picture of. Right. Um, it was, it, it was just a normal, Hey dad, I really want to build this. Can you help me? And so at 11 years old, you know, let's go, let's do it. It's like the, going back to the original part of the story is, is that the think it, do it was, was the way people were in my world. It wasn't just my dad. I mean, it was to a certain degree, but it was more so in a big sense is, is that the, um, the community that my dad fell in the middle of that I fell as a result of was that way. And they were the people, they were the people that were putting people on the moon and doing all kinds of things with technology that had to do with, of course, the Silicon chip development and the ideas that had to do with, you know, satellites and, and developing, um, a complete, um, you know, uh, the backbone of the internet, all these kind of things. It, this, <clears throat> this was part of, it was part of the world I lived in. Now, the, the thing that is really worth noting is, is that this, this was simultaneously true for a complete hippie culture. <laughs> <laughs> that was developing just north 50 miles in Marin County that was part of the music industry and other you know kind of lifestyle counter countercultural lifestyle my dad was a was a was a technology nerd in in a in a very you know classic sense you know right with him, him and his buddies, you know, with, with their idiosyncrasies that had to do with being square and being engineers and being conservative and, you know, just kind of, you know, um, building on, I don't know, you know, there was, there was, uh, there was just a very, uh, practical problem solving kind of persona to them. Very, very much in that way, a very international culture. I mean, the friends that I had at that time were from all over the world. My okay. my best friend just got off the boat from Hong Kong, and another best friend was a black family um, that had a really smart father that that was um, um, uh, an engineer also that my dad knew. And uh, and Indian and and Japanese and I don't know. It's just for me coming from the East Coast and the kind of friends that I had at, uh, in an East Coast life and the kind of friends that I had in a West Coast life. It was it it, it, it was night and day. Yeah, that's what it sounds like. And, and I've done that that trip before from the East to the West, and I can just uh, picture exactly what you say that the how the attitude and everything changes the more you go west. You know, um, yeah. the people who, who live there just, uh, 
you know, like yeah. uh, have pockets that uh, are much deeper and, and, and the inspiration there is, is more intense, right? Yeah, I mean, if you take, if you take, <laughs> it, I mean, it's just, it, it's just hard, hard to put into a good way of describing it. I mean, at some point I'll try to do a better job than, than a conversation with you. But if, if, if you take that and then you, and then you build a community of cyclists that you meet up at races from guys from Marin and Berkeley and Santa Cruz and Monterey and the Bay Area, the Peninsula, San Jose, and Palo Alto, and and you and you meet up every weekend, and you and you raced one with one another, and then you ride and you train on the weekdays with those people. It <laughs> it's it's hard to imagine how how you could how you could put more of a problem solving pool of of people better together than I had when I was starting at 14, 15 years old and becoming, becoming interested in a sport called bicycle racing. And how did that start? How did you get then into, after all that uh, exploring with your dad, sailing and hiking and climbing, how, how did then the racing come into your life? Well, uh, so my dad was uh, first and foremost, a, um, an adventure guy. And so whether it be cycling or, or, um, uh, or backpacking or, or sailboat racing, he was always thinking of a way to do it in, in a new way, an innovative way. And going back to the beginning of kind of how, how, how as much as, we think of technology as this thing that makes everyone, everyone kind of, you know, globally aware of right. everyone else. It was nothing like that. There was no global awareness. This is before any global awareness was, I mean, it, okay. So there was a global kind of awareness, but there was no information. And right. so the idea of getting information from somebody in Italy about how a bike was built, didn't exist. There was only passed down, handed down traditions and people that had seen something that were part of what it was to um, come into, a, a, you know, an experimenting idea and a practice. Yeah. And, you know, so the only one that I knew that ever moved as a frame builder and came to the United States was, uh, was the quiet, uh, uh, life of um, Mario Confente. Mm -hmm. And he moved into a friend of mine's life down in, in Monterey. And I met him once, but, you know, he passed away and there was a, a, a star, you know, kind of a, in a meteoric way. Um, and that was in the 80s. So it really was after this period of time. But for the most part, you know, you had to you had to know somebody who knew somebody that saw something that, that took a picture of something that, <laughs> that that put any pieces together. I mean, just to give you an example, I remember seeing a picture of a frame being built in England. And this is when I was 15 years old and it was on this horizontal 
flat surface with these, uh, for best that I could understand through the picture, these unknown ways that, that the, that the frame is, is being held together. Right. Fixed there. And, and, and braised. And I didn't, I, I couldn't, I, I couldn't figure it out from the pictures. It was only, um, it was only after, uh, kind of surmising and reverse engineering and taking a tube out of a frame that I saw that there were these little nails that were, if I remember trying to take a tube out of a, of, of a, this Bob Jackson or Ron Cooper and having the hardest time taking it out as I heated it up and saw the brass melting, I couldn't pull the tube out. I go, dang, what's going on? Well, little did I know that they assembled in a loose way the tubes and flux them up and put them on this horizontal surface that kept them in roughly the right place. And they pinned them. They put a nail through the lug and the tube to hold them in a place where it was approximately the place that the frame should go, <laughs> the tube should go. But they never really, uh, I, knowing what a, a lug did and knowing the, cr the crude nature of a lug, of a steel lug that was pressed in and welded and, and barely formed in a fashion that you, so, so a lug, if you bought a lug in the day, it was, let's say, a down tube lug. It was a 60 degree angle to the head tube and the down tube. Right. I know this is getting in the weeds, but it would move between 61 and 60 and 59. So you had a geometry range in the lug. And if you made a frame and you pinned it together, you weren't talking about accuracy, the kind of accuracy that I was looking for. And so the first thing I thought of is, is dang, this is so caveman. I can't believe that this is what we're riding. It is so crude to imagine this bike, you know, and it's in its uh, it, it, in the it, it, in the manufacturing process that you're going to make a lot of these, and you want to make it right every time, and boom, ba boom, ba boom. Right. And so I made uh, in my tenth grade um, uh, shop class at at high school, I made a vertical piece of tooling and something that had a way of harnessing angles and keeping them straight in a completely new way. It's something that I'd never seen done before. And it was just my idea. It was a 15 year old kid's idea. Hey, you know, if I was going to build a frame, this is how I'd build it, you know? So when I go back to, you know, the advantages of being in a West Coast Silicon Valley, in particular, engineering world, and removed with all the you know the advantages of YouTube and influences, you basically invent a new way of doing something. It seems that that your own uh, quality uh, expectations have been a driver there, right? Uh, well, I, uh, you know, it was mine and it was my dad's handed down and it was other people. And basically you, when you're, when you're 
I mean, I like to kind of talk about tradition in a respectful way, but some of tradition is repeating the same mistake over and over and over again and, and not thinking out of the box. And I would say that, that um, there's a tremendous amount of wonderful tradition in the, in, and uh, that has to do with why we're gravel riding and other things, you know, modern in a modern sense. Um, but there's also a, a lot of doofus kind of tradition that doesn't get thought of. It just says, well, that's the way it was done. Right. And if you don't do it that way, you know, your bike's going to break. And, you know, other comments that I was given at a young, at a young age. And, and uh, I remember the um, when I was racing a guy named um, Steve, uh, was the national team mechanic when I was just starting to race. And after, so I just built my first bike when when I became a junior. Uh, I repaired the, the Cinelli when I was intermediate, and um, and so my first when I was. What was your first race then? Uh, you know, I was 14, I was an intermediate and it was a, it was a race in Atascadero, California, if you know where that is. And my dad was, it was a, it was a big century ride get together. And they also coincided it with a race. Okay. And, and I just thought, Hey, I'm going to, I'm going to see if I can, I can race today. And I did, I raced and it was, I was second and I, I surprised myself a little bit because the guy that won was the junior state champion and I was an intermediate and I said, dang, you know, that's, I, I'm, I think I'm going to do this. And so it was, it was early on, didn't know anything, didn't know anything about uh, racing. I was just kind of, did, in did a, your dad race? Did your dad or just did no, the centers? No, no, just me. Yeah. So he was more yeah. into adventure. Category. So my dad, my dad got me into cycling, but I got him into racing. Okay. And so it just became something that um, just fell into place. And he was, he was, uh, he was, you know, very um, into long distance riding. So he was in good shape and he had friends that, ended up um, uh, him becoming uh, a community with in the same way that sailboat racing and, and, and uh, Sierra club uh, backpacking and other things. And it, it just was a new community of friends. Nice. Yeah. For him. I mean, it was more, I mean, he was interested in racing, but he was, he was more interested in, in, in having new friends. Yeah. And I was too, to some degree, but, Probably in a different way as a as a sixteen year old, fifteen year old, um, I was much more into into testing myself and testing myself against older people, and and uh, which which kind of became my um, somewhat you know persona as the senior. They you know referred to me as the senior slayer uh, as I as I gained in 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 strength and develop my own bikes and products around the bike and stuff. So, so they called you the yeah. senior slayer. 
<laughs> that was my that was my nickname. <laughs> wow. So, but back to those friends, it seems really interesting that that, as you said, you know that there was really hard to get information. It seems like that uh, in in the area, especially the West Coast where you lived, it was the people that you got the inspiration and ideas and exchanged it. Could it be like that? Well, I think I think you know I think it it comes from being a quick study at a very early age and having a father that was in an, in a modern engineering sense a guy that was solving problems right for you know for for whether it be the military or or a company and and it was new problems it was it was It was, it was solutions that were needed, solutions that had value. And, and you, you think differently when you're in a community of people that are wired that way. And, uh, and, you know, it just so happened that a lot of these people were very, very outdoor-oriented people. It wasn't like they were figuring out new ways to play shuffleboard on the you know, on a cruise ship or, or new ways to play golf. It was, it was, how do we have more fun? Outside. <laughs> Outside. Because this is such a cool place to live. And, and, and there is so much. The, the adventure part, was that also a driver for that side? Outside and adventure? Yeah, well, I mean, if you if you fast forward or not fast forward, if you transition into the years of meeting Yopes Brand, which my dad did, so he came he came back from a a Sunday ride when I was just in the beginning stages of getting serious about cycling, all covered with mud and a big smile on his face, and I and I said, "Where the heck have you been?" And he told me, and I said, "I want to meet this guy," and so that was. Uh, th that was the transition um, of the of riding in the Santa Cruz Mountains on gravel roads and dirt and trails and 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 all the things that that um, kind of captured my imagination as a young man beyond racing to the love of cycling to the love of adventure adventure cycling and I was totally totally in the right place at the right time with the right people to to make that dream come true so let's yeah, you mentioned the name yopes so that then he was one of those uh who who luck you had right people you meet uh through your dad and and then how did he inspire you he took you on rides or what, what how did this how do we have to imagine this that <clears throat> got you going well, on these adventures so uh so he he had a, a a larger he was a very large guy he was six foot four but along with that he had a personality that went with it and the uh, uh, the racing community that that was um, that I was training with and getting to know and, and connecting with was was typical um, in that day, but Yopes was unusual. Yopes okay. was a, a world-class engineer working for Hewlett Packard and inventing stuff like my dad at Hewlett Packard, which was a, ironically a, 
a competitor of right. the company my dad worked for. And, uh, and anyway, the, um, the things that Yokes did were so unusual in terms of the cycling that he developed um, a unique reputation. He, he didn't race, but he did things that were beyond people's imagination at the time in racing. And what was that? Mike, do you have an example? <laughs> that, that was, it, it, if, okay, so imagine this. Imagine, okay, as racers, we had, we had train. We, we had to train. Right. So, so the, so the, you know, being able to be in good enough fitness to meet up on the weekends and race against one another was a, was a, was a, was a big deal. It was a priority. So how do you fit in training and racing? It wasn't like it is today where any of any, that everyone had a job. So there wasn't any, they were going to school or they had a job. So how do you fit that in? Right. You're, you know, you're getting up at five in the morning or you're getting, you know, into the, into the evening hours and you're, and you're training or whatever. Well, uh, <laughs> um, I remember calling up a fellow racer who was in, in very good shape. He was on the national team, uh, Keith Fiera. And I said, what are you, what are you going to do this weekend? He goes, well, shoot, you know, I don't, I'm not sure I want to go down to Acton road race. It's just a, a long drive and a bunch of LA types will show up and they'll suck your wheel and they'll, you know, beat you in a sprint. Um, and he said, well, what do you think about going on a Yopes ride? Ah, shoot. I don't think I'm in good enough shape. <laughs> <laughs> I, re I remember that being the conversation. And that's the truth of it. It's like it, the, the rides that we would do were so hard and long and adventurous. I mean, it's, it's like if you... A lot of the rides, if 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 you weren't keeping up with Yopes, you were getting lost in the woods. And how are you going to get home? <laughs> he, a little pressure. He, was, he, he would he would only he was the only one that knew knew how to go. I mean, knew the route, knew the he had ventured into these places for years, and until we knew where we were going, we didn't know how to how to get back home. How to get there. And how to get and how to get out of there. People get lost and die in the Santa Cruz Mountains. They're like ten times bigger than we're in. So, can you put a number to through these uh, adventures, like hours and miles? Or <laughs> well, typically they were uh, in the neighborhood of a hundred to a hundred and fifty miles, and I would say on the average, you know, twenty or thirty of them was virgin gravel dirt or trails that no one was on and you were walking um eh, most of the time we were riding that okay. was the thing is, is that yokes it was all about riding it and it wasn't like the so the images of the rough stuff fellowship out of england that i see it where all these people are kind of walking, pushing their bikes. So England, there was a big difference in, in geo geography. And so when you have so much, so much rough rock 
terrain, it's really difficult to actually manage to ride it. But in the in the uniqueness of the Santa Cruz Mountains with the redwood trees and the kind right. of way in way in which the roads kind of went um uh and the soft and the softness i mean you could we crashed all the time so it was a matter of of uh, falling was a normal thing um and you were but you were falling on on the salt on the soft bed of of uh of a lot of tree tree forests that had uh that had a redwood canopy and a lot of you know hundreds of years of dropping you know tree foliage and it was it was soft and a lot of the and there and it was very unrocky um so a lot of it was it, when it got wet it got muddy but you know for the most part we we knew where and how to ride and a lot of the roads were were classic gravel roads old logging roads old old um, um roads for uh that had been once uh train uh train railroad railroad grades um and that was uh so that so anyway the your my the point i'm making is is that yopes offered a very unique experience dating back before the 60s for for people like my dad and myself um of riding into the mountains a different way in a way that very few people uh uh, that you know historically uh in the cycling community did and and so he gained a reputation because of that that was beyond a racer and it was like um i don't know if you know the name lawrence malone but he was uh, so lawrence lawrence malone was uh he just passed away last year and a um, very good racer national team five-time national he was the one that started um, cyclocross. That cyclocross being on the on the radar, okay, in in the in the seventies uh, in the United States, ended up uh, being the highest. Being I forget which cross race he went to on the national team, but it was something around seventy six, seventy five, six, seven, um, where he went abroad and was tenth place in the world championships. Okay. Which was unheard of. And in cyclocross. <laughs> in cyclocross. Right. Anyway, Yopes, he was, he was, um, he was on our rides, and um, there was a lot of people that 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 tried him. Um, anyway, he also worked for Winning Magazine as a writer at in those years, and uh, you can look it up. He wrote an article called. It was right after Star Wars, the movie came out and he wrote an article. I mean, this is after he had won the national championships another m many times and was, was well known in, in, in primarily Bay Area cycling. But he wrote an article and the name of the article was The Force Who Rides. <laughs> and that was Yopes. He was a force and no one could, you know, basically no one, no one could challenge him. He was tremendously fit, amazing in his, in his, uh, um, 
his stamina and uh and for a period of time um put the fear of god in just about everyone that was a racer and you know racing in the bay area was considered to be the hotbed of of racing in the whole united states so that that must have been like what 19 i'm just checking this 1978 when the first star wars came out that's a wrap Thank you for listening in to the first episode of Tom Ritchie's Great Stories. We'll have a second one ready for you to air in one week. So stay tuned and have a good ride.